Hello, my name's Dom, and this is your guide to making it through med school. It's Redwood Ramblings. Hello, you've made it to Redwood Ramblings. Today, we are going to be discussing the extensive topic of type 1 diabetes. If you haven't already seen the new graphic, the new artwork that has been uploaded to the Spotify podcast, created by our own Maddie Gibbard here at the Academy, congratulations for winning the competition. Remember, please send any of your suggestions, corrections, anything that you want to hear on the podcast, suggestions for Dom Etymology, for riddles. We're thinking of creating a new student-led feature, which will involve you guys coming on and giving us your mnemonics. So please get in touch if you'd like to feature on the podcast, redwoodramblings at gmail.com. Hello once again. Welcome to Redwood Ramblings. I am joined today by the lovely Dr. Emma with us. Hello, everyone. Emma, um, first and foremost, can I please ask you what you had for dinner last night? What did I have for dinner last night? I had a spinach and chickpea curry for dinner last night. Ooh, good. Was it nice? Hey, it was lovely. Any sides? Had a nice little aubergine nigella seed side and a bit of rice with it. A bit of mango chutney on the side. It was beautiful. Goodness me. Today, Emma, what are we going to be talking about? So today we're going to be having a chat about type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes, alluding to the fact that there's more than type more than one type of diabetes. Indeed. But I think most of the students should know that at this point in their student careers, shouldn't they? Well, it depends who's listening, doesn't it? We are first going to start off with some questions that you've brought along for us. Let's hear them. So, we've got question 1. What cells in the body are attacked in type 1 diabetes? Question two, how often should adults with type 1 diabetes have their HbA1c checked? Question three, what is the target range of blood glucose readings for young patients with type 1 diabetes? Question four, patients are screened regularly for complications of diabetes. What two complications do they undergo annual screening for? And question five, What is the usual treatment regimen for newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes? So we're going to revisit those questions at the end and give you some choices and go through the answers. Now, just before we get into the case, let's hear from our resident Redwood Riddler. Hello, I am Harry, the Redwood Riddler. You may have seen some of my work up on the notice board in Redwood. I am here on the podcast to deliver further riddles to you. Redwood Riddler, what is your riddle today? Screaming, soaring, seeking sky, flowers of fire flying high, eastern art from ancient time, name me now and solve this rhyme. Thank you, Riddler. We're going to start with a case and then we'll go through presentation of type 1 diabetes, investigations, pathophysiology and finish with the management. Sounds like a plan. Fantastic. Okay, so your case for today is a 15-year-old female who's brought into the emergency department with a 24-hour history of severe nausea, vomiting and abdominal pain, which has been rapidly worsening over the day. She's got a history of a couple of weeks of lethargy, increased thirst and increased urination. 
He's been losing weight over the past few weeks and there is a family history of hypothyroidism and celiac disease. So that's our case. We're talking about type 1 diabetes, Emma. So what are these patients doing? How are they presenting? When are they presenting? So in type 1 diabetes, they are typically presenting in the younger age groups, usually under the age of 20, although it can be a little bit later in life as well. And usually they present in the way that we've just described in this case, which is quite an acute presentation. And it's something that we describe as diabetic ketoacidosis. So what's going on is that they've got plenty of sugar in their body, but it's all stuck in the blood. It's not getting into the tissues that need it. So therefore they've got these really high blood sugar, but their tissues are actually starving. So the the phrase that kind of describes this is starving in the midst of plenty. In some people, they can have a slightly more insidious and slower onset, but the more common way of presenting is like we have with our 15-year-old girl in this case. So this patient of our case has got a couple of week history of, we said, lethargy, increased thirst, increased urination. Is that typical? That's quite typical because the, the, the sugar in the blood is then making the patient dehydrated, um, so they feel like they need to drink more the glucose is then passing out in the urine and sort of drawing more water out in the urine as well by osmosis and therefore they're having to pass more urine and it's a bit of a vicious cycle there where they end up dehydrated drinking more but peeing more as well okay okay this patient she's coming very unwell she's nauseous she's vomiting she's got abdominal pain it's rapidly been worsening over the day um are we worried about this patient Yes, it's it's one of the sort of emergency things that we do need to pick up fairly quickly and, and start treatment for, because as it if it was left to progress, DKA, that diabetic ketoacidosis, is something that can result in the patient becoming very unwell and perhaps becoming even comatose. So it is something we do want to treat very quickly if we can. So it's something that we screen for when well we we test for in patients that we're suspicious of with this sort of history by quickly doing some blood tests, which could include a venous blood gas, which is something we can get a result on very quickly. And on that, we can find out their blood glucose. And if that's particularly elevated, that would point us in one direction. It'll show us their acid level in the blood, and we can also test for the ketones. And it's that combination of the three, the diabetic ketoacidosis, that would give us the diagnosis. Okay. So do people with diabetes, they know they've got type 1 diabetes, do they often come in with um, DKA? Um, people that have it already can do if their diabetic control isn't very good, which can be for a number of different reasons. There are particular times that they might it might sort of be precipitated, and that can be if a patient has an intercurrent infection, that can um, affect their blood glucose regulation. So they might then be more prone to getting elevated glucose, and uh, their sort of insulin glucose balance being a bit mismatched, resulting in the pr- the production of the ketones and the DKA. So for this reason, patients have, are told about what's called sick day rules, where they're advised to check their glucose more regularly and check their ketones more regularly and make sure they stay hydrated if they are having a, a bit of a cold or another infection as, alongside. And this is to try and, and buffer that and protect them from going into DKA. See, very interesting. Okay. So it sounds like we're, we're rushing through the presentation. We want to talk about the pathophysiology, don't we? Oh, we of, do. <laughs> it sort of makes sense to really um, get to know what's going on inside the body. So take us through what's happening in, in type 1 diabetes then. So type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition. So it's linked to HLA alleles, that's human leukocyte antigens, which you might come across in some other conditions as well. 
this means that it might be comorbid with other autoimmune conditions within the same patient or as in our case you might have a family history of other autoimmune conditions such as thyroid disease or celiac disease. Um, in type 1 diabetes where the autoimmune attack is happening is within the pancreas and that's specifically the islet cells in the pancreas and these are the cells that make insulin so therefore in these patients where those islet cells are being destroyed then insulin deficient because they can't make enough okay so in patients that have got a new diagnosis of type 1 diabetes or you're suspicious have type 1 diabetes then 90% of these patients will have some autoantibodies that we can test for and the ones we test for are called glutamic acid decarboxylase which is often abbreviated to GAD so G-A-D um, islet autoantigen 2 or IA2 these are the two main ones and sometimes they can have autoantibodies to the insulin itself rather than to the, the beta cells but the main two are the GAD and the IA2 antibodies okay so this is stuff that they could be examined on what antibodies would you be looking for so we'd be looking for GAD and IA2 islet autoantigen 2 so in these patients that can't make their own insulin because of the islet cell destruction in type 1 diabetes they're then insulin deplete so therefore all of the sugar that they are consuming stays in the blood and isn't able to be used what can then happen is the body tries to sort of compensate and find other ways of creating energy in the cells so we'll get other hormones being released like glucagon cortisol and growth hormone these then produce other pathways including gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis and ketogenesis which are other ways to try and create that energy okay and this is because we're not getting the sugar in that we need however we've then still got the really high sugars we're making lots of ketones which produce an acid and therefore the body gets into an acidic state so an acidic state is bad we don't like to be acidic yeah <laughs> the body's got a nice little ph range that it likes to sit in if we get too far out of that then all the different body processes start to go a bit awry Okay, so this patient with DKA, mm -hmm. this is happening in this patient. They've started to produce lots of ketones. They've become acidotic, yeah. hence the phrase ketoacidosis. And we need to do something about it. We do. Yes, quite rapidly. Quite rapidly, yeah, because we want to try and stop it from getting any worse. Okay. So in these patients that come in in DKA, they are de very dehydrated, as we've discussed. So fluids is a part of the initial regimen, and we give them fairly quickly so quite often you'll give a litre over an hour or two and then repeat. They also, because we've, like we said, they're insulin deplete because they're not making their own insulin, we need to give them insulin. And in this case, because it's a, quite an acute presentation, we go for IV, so intravenous insulin. This is given at a fixed rate um, in this case. So that's given at 0.1 units per kilogram per hour. And that continues until we've got the ketones and the acidosis back down under control. Should we be remembering that number? 0.1 units per kilogram per hour. It's a nice little one to remember, can come up on MCQs and exams. 0.1 units per kilogram per hour, so your fixed rate insulin for DKA. Nice summary. I think now is a good time to revisit our riddler to find out the answer to earlier's riddle. <laughs> The answer is a firework. A very excited Redwood Riddler there. Thank you.
how are we finding out that this, this young lady's got diabetes if we don't already know? So we're going to test her glucose levels, which will be greater than 11 in her blood. We're going to test the ketone levels as well, which to diagnose DKA would have to be greater than 3 millimoles per litre. And then we're going to test for her acid level in on that venous blood gas, which would be less than 7.3. We've got our results. We know she's at in diabetic ketoacidosis and we start with our management which is going to be fluids fluids and that fixed rate insulin and that fixed rate insulin once we've got this patient stable what are we doing with her are we sending her out on her way so there's a few things we need to do so whilst we're getting her stable with the fluids and the insulin we need to keep an eye on her electrolytes as well because if we're giving lots of fluids we could end up over diluting so we want to watch for the, the sodium and the potassium and also insulin lowers our serum potassium levels by transferring it into the blood cells uh, into the tissue cells um so we whilst we're giving lots of insulin we need to make sure we're not going to make her hypokalemic as well so we're keeping an eye on that and topping up our fluids with a bit of potassium here and there if we need to hypokalemia is bad hypokalemia is bad our hearts don't like it very much once we've fixed the dka so that's when the ph is greater than 7.3 again the ketones are less than 0.6 and then the bicarbonate is another measure of the acidosis we, we watch for we want that to be greater than 18 millimoles per litre once we've maintained those three levels if the patient is eating and drinking we can switch them to subcutaneous insulin so it's the injections under the skin that most people maintain on if they're not yet eating and drinking they can go to another version of a iv insulin regime which is called the variable rate insulin infusion so for this one They've got a bag of fluids with some insulin, which will go through one cannula. And then the nurses have a protocol where they sequentially check the patient's blood glucose and they will alter the insulin levels, like the rate of the insulin infusion, depending on the blood le levels. Hence the word variable. Exactly. Okay. So the patient comes in, they're resuscitated with fluid, they go into a fixed rate insulin. And then when they are getting better, they're starting to eat and drink we can move them on to either a subcutaneous insulin or a variable rate insulin. Yeah. Perfect. We got them well. They're eating and drinking. Can I send them home yet? Not yet, because all that's going to happen if we send them home now is they've got no insulin. We're going to have exactly the same problem. They'll go home, they'll eat, their sugars will come up, their ketones will go up because it's not going where it needs to be, and they'll be back in the next day. So what we need to do is refer them to the inpatient diabetes team so they can have some education about their condition. Because unfortunately, this is not a curable thing this is something they're going to be living with for the rest of their life and it has quite a big impact on on their day-to-day -day lives so there's a lot of education that these patients need they are going to need to know about monitoring their blood sugars they're going to need to know about how to administer insulin and who to contact when they have problems so all of these patients will be seen by a secondary care diabetes specialist consultant who will sort of oversee their care They'll also have the contact details of the diabetes specialist nurses um, who will be their sort of first port of call if they've got any questions and will help with their education as well. Um, there is also a diabetes specialist dietitian involved in the team who can talk to patients about how to carb count. So that's thinking about how much carbohydrate they're eating, which of course is broken down into glucose, so will then affect their glucose levels later in the day. And they need to sort of find that balance between how much carbohydrate they're eating and therefore how much insulin to give themselves. So that can be an important balance there. So normally when I'm eating, my mm. body's very, very good at 
producing enough insulin to counteract the carbohydrate, the sugar that I've got in my body. Exactly. And it's not something you need to think about. Your body just does it. It's got a little bit ticking along throughout the day. And then when you have a meal, you'll have a little surge in your body to deal with what you've just eaten. And completely natural. That's what we want our bodies to do. And that's then what we're going to try and mimic in the regimes we give to our patients with type 1 diabetes. So they can't make the insulin by themselves, as we've discussed, because of that destruction of the islet cells in the pancreas. So therefore we need to give them exogenous insulin instead. So that's usually given via a subcutaneous injection. The regime that most patients go on to in order to try and match our natural body um, patterns that we just discussed is called a basal bolus regime. So this is when they'll have two long-acting insulin injections a day, one in the morning, one in the evening. And that just gives that background slow release, ticking along insulin. They'll then have short-release insulin or fast-acting insulin that they give themselves with each meal. And this is the ones that you might tweak a little bit depending on what's what they eat or what they're planning to eat. Okay. It's now time for my favourite feature, and it's my favourite feature because I'm on it. It's dometemology. Now, when's that for what? Is it because it's Latin? Why does everyone call that word? It's dometemology. Now, this week we're talking about diabetes, so I thought I'd go back and find out the etymology of diabetes. And some of you may be quite familiar with this. The origin of the word diabetes is from the Greek, and they took it from a word which means to siphon or pass through. And this is because of the excessive amount of urination that patients with diabetes present with. Furthermore, the word mellitus, as in diabetes mellitus, comes from a word meaning sweet. And this is because of the sweetness of the urine. Now, I'm not making any accusations, but for some reason, everyone documents that the urine of these patients with diabetes was sweet. The question we all have is, who on earth was tasting it? Now, when's that for what? Is it because it's Latin? Why does everyone call that word? It's dometemology. There's um, several complications of diabetes, which we need to be keeping an eye out for and making sure our patients know about as well. In the sort of broad category, there's microvascular and macrovascular complications of diabetes. So the, the elevated levels of blood sugar can be very irritable on, on the blood vessels and cause these complications. The macrovascular complications include our cardiovascular problems. They're at increased risk of having myocardial infarction. They've got increased risk of cerebrovascular disease, including strokes, and peripheral vascular disease. So they might end up further down the line from having elevated blood sugar for a long time, having um, ischemia of the foot or ulcers and things like that as well. Okay, so we've got our macrovascular complications. We do. We've got the brain, we've got the heart, and we've got the peripheries. So peripheral vascular disease, cardiovascular disease, and cerebrovascular disease. That's right. Okay microvascular disease i'm going to guess we're talking about smaller vasculature within the body exactly exactly right so for our microvascular complications we're thinking about the blood vessels that supply our eyes so patients can get a retinopathy over time also the teeny little blood vessels that go to the nerves in our bodies so then get a neuropathy and also the small blood vessels in the kidneys so patients can get a diabetic nephropathy as well okay so we've got nephropathy retinopathy and neuropathy that's right i mean i think that's a reasonably easy way of remembering things so microvascular your opathies and your macrovascular 
your... Vasculars. Cardiovasculars. Cerebrovascular. Peripheral vascular. Perfect. Yeah. How are we looking after those? So we are trying to make sure they don't happen in the first place as best we can. So the key thing there is to try and keep the blood sugar levels under control. So the target range we have for young patients with type 1 diabetes is between 4 and 10 millimoles per litre. The reason I say for young patients is because as patients get older and perhaps more frail, more prone to falling, we might loosen some of that guidance to try and avoid them from having a hypo, which is the too low blood sugar, and cause them to fall. The reason that's less imp- that we, c- we can relax it in our old patients is because there's less time for the sugar to have a, those sort of detrimental long-term vascular effects in a patient that's older than if in a patient that's 20. The other thing is we need to keep an eye out to, to make sure that we're watching for if it does develop. So our patients with diabetes will have annual screening. So they'll have annual retinopathy screening and they'll have an annual review with their diabetes team during which we will um, ask them to bring an early morning urine sample, which will check for the albumin-creatinine ratio, which is a, a sign of kidney disease. We'll check their kidney function. We will check their lipids to look for cardiovascular risk factors there. And they'll have their blood pressure checked. We will also, at that point, screen for their, um, check their thyroid-stimulating hormone, which, although it's not a complication of diabetes, because it's another autoimmune condition, which, as we know, type 1 diabetes is, patients can develop other autoimmune conditions, including thyroid eye disease um, and celiac as well. It's quite common. So are they getting everything reviewed annually? They're getting all their macrovascular and all their microvascular? They're getting most of them reviewed there. Okay, good, good. We're checking for the cardiovascular risk factors, which will also consider their cerebrovascular. Um, they're getting their foot screening, that I didn't mention there. That's looking at some of your peripheral peripheral vascular and also the neuropathy as well so testing for the sensation in the foot the one that they get checked a little bit more frequently is their hba1c so that's their glycosylated hemoglobin which gives you kind of an average of the last three months of what their their blood sugars have been and that's checked every three to six months for adults with type 1 diabetes okay so we've got their hba1c being checked every three to six months they're getting diabetic foot screening every year. Mm-hmm. And what other screening are they getting every year? So they're getting their retinopathy screening every year and their annual checkup where they'll check for the kidney disease, for their cardiovascular risk factors and check for any associated thyroid disease. Brilliant. Okay. These days, I'm aware that patients with diabetes have got a lot more options to them available yeah so there's been quite a lot of advances recently with the sort of rise of technology and that fusion between the medical and technological worlds it does mean that there's a bit more options available to patients with type 1 they can have like you say insulin pumps so this is a little device that sits subcutaneously again which can give them a continuous rate of the uh, rapid acting insulin so rather than having that basal slow acting insulin in the morning and the evening, they just have a slow, steady rate that goes all the time of the fast acting. Then they can press a button to give them a bolus with their meal. So they can then have a slightly increased amount. So is that is, is that much more similar to what our bodies are doing naturally? Yeah, so it's again trying to mimic what we would, would do. The pros of this is that they don't have to inject quite so often. So they're not having multiple injections throughout the day. They've just got the one device that's always sat there. The cons are if it comes out or if they have any device failure, they don't have any basal insulin in the background, so they're at higher risk of them going into DKA, so they do need to keep a close eye on it. 
So they need to be quite well educated and aware of what's yes, going on. Yes, which is why this isn't something we offer patients that have newly been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. They've got a lot to learn about before they can, they, before they'd probably be able to manage a pump and the complications of that. Okay. So alongside the pumps, patients can also have a measuring device? Yeah, so we've there's a couple of devices out there these days. The two main ones called Libra and Dexcom. And these are really clever. So rather than measuring the capillary blood glucose, which is what we're measuring when we do the finger pricks, they sit in the sort of interstitial fluid between the, between the cells. So they measure the interstitial glucose rather than the capillary. So it's a slightly different range. But you can put this device on, it'll sit there on the arm for up to two weeks and it continuously measures the blood glucose even when patients are asleep. So then this can be logged onto the phone. They can have an app to link it to. So they can see a little graph of what their sugars have been doing throughout the day, which can help to then match their insulin to what they need. You can set alerts on it. So if your readings are you know, going down towards four and you're at risk of developing a hypo, it can then send an alert so you don't get a notification on your phone saying, reading low, do you want to have a look at it? And equally, if it's going too high, you can set an upper limit as well. The really nice thing about this is that your clinicians, if you, as the patient, choose to share that information, can log in on their computer system. And when you go to have your, your meetings with your, with your consultant, they can have a look at what your glucose readings are doing. And based on the graph, tweak your insulin regime or perhaps change to a slightly different length of duration of action of insulins to try and give a nice sort of steady state that we're after. Wow, technology is amazing. It is. So I know there's some groups of patients that we worry about when they've got diabetes. First of all, I think we'll touch on pregnant mothers. The the problem we have with type 1 diabetes is that, as we've said, it, just, it affects patients that are very young and very early in their lives. So therefore, it does affect patients, especially women, through their reproductive years. And the there are some, lots of complications to having elevated blood sugars through pregnancy, both to the mother, but mainly to the, the fetus. So it's a, a really important thing to be aware of and for the the patients to know about when they're thinking about pregnancy and planning pregnancy um because ideally we want to have really tight sugar control for at least three months before the patient even becomes pregnant would be the ideal world and they have a slightly tighter glucose control range because of these potential risks they have they're advised to keep it between four and eight rather than four and ten wow okay so really tight control is the main aim for for pregnant or women at reproductive age who are thinking of being yes. pregnant. Okay. Are there any other groups of people that we're really concerned about with diabetes? So there's a, there is a risk of us developing a sort of a, a comorbid eating disorder with patients with diabetes. Because if you think, if you've got someone who's maybe a bit of an anxious personality, has got some traits that might make them at risk of developing an eating disorder, but maybe they wouldn't have quite, made, wouldn't have quite tipped over the edge. If you then make them think about every meal they eat and how much exercise they do and the effect that that exercise will have on their sugar levels and, you know, do I really want that snack? I'll have to have some more insulin. If I take insulin, that makes me gain weight. If I don't take insulin, I'll lose weight. But the insulin is keeping you well. Is all of that then going on? If you've got someone that's perhaps a bit prone to an eating disorder and you then, if they're then put into that position, that's not uncommon to then tip them over the edge into into having an eating disorder okay emma i think we have just about covered everything that we wanted to cover so i think we're going to v- revisit our questions okay we're going to give you the optional answers for the questions and we'll go through each one 
All right. So question one was what cells in the body are attacked in type 1 diabetes? Is it A, intrinsic cells? B, interstitial cells? C, islet cells? D, inset cells? Or E, intermediate cells? This one looks hard because they all begin with I. Almost like I wrote it that way, isn't it? So I think from what we said was that we have islet cells in the pancreas which are destroyed by this autoimmune process. So we're going to go with C, islet cells. That's right. Well done, Dom. So question two is how often should adults with type 1 diabetes have their HbA1c checked? Is it A, annually? B, monthly? C, every one to two months? D, every three to six months? Or E, every six to nine months? So tricky question because they are going to have it checked annually, I'd imagine, at their annual checkup. But I think you mentioned having it checked every... I think it was three to six months or is it six to nine months? It was three to six. It was three to six. But yes, you are right. One of those three to six months would probably tie in with with their annual review when they have all of those other tests that we mentioned before. So the GP is probably going to be checking the HbA1c every three to six months? Yeah. Question number three. What is the target range of CBG, that's capillary blood glucose readings, for our young patients with type 1 diabetes? Is it A... 2 to 8, B, 4 to 10, C, 6 to 12, D, 8 to 14, or E, 10 to 16. Pregnant women was 4 to 8. The young patients, if I remember right, it was 4 to 10 millimoles. That's right. Well done, Dom. I could be a doctor, you know. You could. Question four. So our patients are screened regularly for complications of diabetes. Which two complications do they have annual screening for? Is it A, eye disease and kidney function? B, cardiovascular disease and bone mineral density? C, hearing tests and foot screening? D, eye disease and pancreatitis? Or E, liver function and kidney function? Okay, so there's a lot of things in here. There are don't think we worry about bone mineral density, hearing, pancreatitis or liver function. So I think the ones we do worry about are eye disease and kidney function. So is that what we're getting tested? That is what we're getting tested. Well done. So we are also looking at our cardiovascular disease, our foot screening and our our kidney function we said already. But you're right, bone mineral density, hearing, pancreatitis and liver function are not screened for. So they were some red herrings. Question number five. What is the usual treatment regimen for newly diagnosed type 1 diabetes? Is it A, basal insulin only? B, continuous subcutaneous insulin pump therapy? C, metformin only? Is it D, basal bolus insulin with metformin? Or E, basal bolus insulin? Okay, so a couple of mentions of metformin, which we've not talked about, so I'm assuming... I will assume that's got nothing to do with type 1 diabetes. Um, Now, we did talk about having the pump, so I'm going to go with the continuous subcutaneous pump therapy. Oh, you were very close there, Dom. But like we said before, the risks of the the continuous subcutaneous pump therapy is that while it's better for the patient in that they don't have to inject quite as often, they 
um, it's a little bit more difficult to manage. So for our newly diagnosed ones, we start them on the basal bolus insulin, which gives a bit more ability to sort of tweak and make sure that they, they always have that background insulin. Whereas if they're new to the pump and don't know how to manage insulin and don't know the sort of the risks of it yet, if the pump fails, they don't have that background insulin. We don't want that. So our new ones have basal bolus insulin. I see. So once they're well established, once they know enough about the disease, they're well educated, they might be thinking about moving on to one of these continuous subcutaneous pumps. Exactly. Brilliant. Well, Emma, I just want to thank you very much for your time today. We've covered the the, the topic of di- type 1 diabetes as best we can. There's a lot more, as we mentioned, but um, I just want to thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me. So one thing left to do, and that is to say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>